Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. With each episode of Heartbeat, we'll bring you insights into this fascinating sport. This season, Heartbeat has explored the pathways of many great biathletes. How did their sport careers begin? How did they find biathlon? Today on Heartbeat, we'll take you to the final World Cup of the season in Östersund, Sweden, to meet U.S. biathlete Jake Brown. Like his teammate Leif Nordgren, Jake grew up in the cross-country ski-crazy state of Minnesota, eventually forging a successful collegiate career at both St. Olaf's and Northern Michigan University. Thanks to a post-college biathlon talent ID camp in Lake Placid, he found his passion, and after hard work, patience, and perseverance the past five years, it's starting to pay off. Jake opened the year with a career best at Contialati, then went on to the World Championships in Pokoyuka shooting clean and finishing an impressive 12th in the sprint. We'll explore Jake's unique background, his approach to sport, and his outlook for the future. After a crazy pandemic season, now let's head to the final IBU World Cup biathlon event in Sweden with U.S. biathlete Jake Brown. Today on Heartbeat, we are going across the world to Östersund, Sweden, and joining us, Jake Brown from the U.S. Biathlon team. And Jake, thank you for joining us. You're in Östersund, Sweden today. That's right. That's right, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, what's the vibe like there? It's kind of a little bit more midwinter conditions than we've had in quite a few weeks being in Central Europe. So that's that's quite a welcomed, um, welcome sight to, to land and see the snow-covered terrain of Sweden. You know, I think as we sit here in mid-March, we're getting ready for the final Biathlon World Cup of the season. If you think back four, five, six months ago, did you ever think that you would be able to get a full season in given the pandemic situations? Um, yes, I, I did. I did think that it was it was possible. Of course, cases were ramping up over the fall and so that kind of put in more doubt but just you know i'm a sports fan and watching the tour de france occur successfully with only with no positive cases among the athletes in that event i mean that gave me kind of a thought that hey maybe we will have a season so i i think i i was hopeful maybe more so than most and maybe naively but um, i'm glad it's worked out the ibu put together a notable protocol, changed up the schedule, reduced the number of sites you needed to travel to. In all, it seems like that protocol worked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and to be honest, I haven't followed too closely. The IBU has published um, all of the positive cases from what they've published, you know, uh, what nationalities the positive cases have occurred in and how many and how many tests they've done. And so I haven't followed too closely, but I know, you know, in Czech Republic, there weren't any positive tests until one of the final days when a few of the, the Swedish coaches, coaches tested positive. It seemed like for the most part, you know, when we had these, these periods of three weeks um, and we had athletes and techs and staff coming in from the outside at the beginning of each of those periods, there were a few positive cases, but then those 
those people were able to be isolated and IBU was able to kind of successfully um, keep the integrity of its bubble. Well, it's been a great season to watch with the World Cup and with the World Championships. We'll get back and talk more about that later. But first, Jake, let's explore your background. You grew up in Minnesota, which is really the heart of cross-country skiing in America. How did you initially get started in the sport of cross-country skiing? Cross-country skiing was something that, that my dad primarily did, and my mom too, but my dad, both my parents are not from Minnesota. Uh, my mom's from Ohio originally, and my dad's from Michigan and Washington, D.C. Um, they both went to college, college in the East. Um, my dad went on a trip with his um, best friend from, from graduate school to the Boundary Waters, and his friend was from Minneapolis. And I think my dad moving to Minnesota, he, he got a job offer with General Mills and decided to take it. Um, that was kind of that would be kind of like me moving to Alaska. I think he kind of felt like he was moving out to the the wilderness of Minneapolis St. Paul area. Um, and And he has definitely an adventurous spirit, and soon it started w- working and and became introduced to cross country skiing through some of his work colleagues. And so for him, this was kind of a fun, new, exciting world to be a part of, and he started doing the Berkey in the late eighties maybe 89 was his first Berkey. I I could be wrong about that. But so my dad was always super into cross-country skiing just as a, as an adult. And I remember being a kid and being downstairs while he would just pour sweat onto the Nordic track and have tapes of like the 94 and the 98 Olympics um, on television with Bjorn Dolly and Thomas Allsgaard leading the way in in those races, at least the, the races that he had tapes of. So for me, that was always something that was kind of my dad's thing. And I grew up playing all sorts of other sports, uh, soccer, basketball, uh, baseball, lacrosse. We, my dad would flood our backyard and played a lot of hockey just for fun. Did a lot of snowboarding, nothing crazy in Minnesota because we don't have mountains, but was really into going to the, the local snowboard park. And then would cross-country ski a little bit with my parents every now and then. And our big race was the Mora Mini Lopet we would always do, which is associated with the Mora Vasa Lopet in Minnesota. So every year we would have to prove to our parents that we could ski the required distance of our race that year at the Mini Lopet. So I probably started with the one kilometer race and then worked my way up to the four kilometer and then the seven kilometer, which would entail two skis throughout the year, one that was longer than the distance I was going to race to prove to my parents that I could successfully ski four kilometers or seven kilometers and then actually the race itself. So um, that was what my introduction to cross-country skiing was as, as a kid. Um, spent a lot of time driving down to Highland Hills in Bloomington and skiing around the lake there. And then I would say in middle school, I started to get a little more into it. My dad and I and my brothers, I have two younger brothers, we would drive up to Telemark, especially to go to the junior national qualifying race there. At the time, they were JOQs when I was a, a J3 which is a U14. So I remember doing some of those races. And then it was when I joined the high school team um, in ninth grade that I really kind of caught the bug for training and endurance sports. And I was also a runner. So those sports kind of worked together. So that was my introduction to cross-country skiing. I love your description of life in Minnesota. It really is a sport-crazy state, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I, I grew up just a total sports fan, obsessed with the Gophers and the Timberwolves and the, the Wild when they came to town in 2001, I think, and the Vikings. So my dad actually being from, from D.C., I grew up a Redskins fan, but now I've been converted um, to a Vikings fan. So 
I was just super into sports and I loved high school sports and, and getting to do cross country skiing for my high school, that, that was big and a big motivator for me. As you got into high school and you got more into junior cross country racing, who were some of your notable coaches and mentors who helped you up to that next level in the sport? Yeah, good question. I've had a, a lot of coaches through the years and, you know, my dad was my first coach for sure. He's the one who taught me how to ski. Um, and I think at the time, you know, he was wave one Berkey skier. And to me, that was a legendary achievement. So um, he was definitely a good, good teacher. Um, but then I started uh, in the high school team with my coach, Ann Ricken, who actually helped start the Minnesota Youth Ski League. So maybe there are people from Minnesota who are familiar with that. Um, a very neat program, but she was my coach at Minnehaha Academy in Minneapolis. My cross-country running and track coach, his name was Christian Zimmerman, and he was one of the people that really got me excited about working hard and doing workouts and planning workouts. Um, he had a very detailed training plan for a cross-country team, and you know, a training plan was something new to me, very different than just going out and running hard and doing what you felt like. Um, Interestingly enough, in, in middle school, I had a coach named Lindsey Brown, who was a runner for, and skier for Stillwater High School, the same high school that Jesse Diggins later attended. And uh, Coach Brown was primarily a runner. He ended up being a professional runner and running some successful marathon races. But he still holds the record, I believe, for the two-mile run in Minnesota State High School. I think he ran just about nine minutes right before they converted to the 3,200-meter run. So he also was someone that got me super into training. And then finally, for, for at least my high school days, Piat Bednarski and Evan Pengeli, um, who were my two club coaches. Um, Piat was kind of the main head coach of Lop and Nordic Racing now. At the time, it was Go Training. And Evan was my like specific kind of group coach. Um, so those two guys kind of got me more excited about specifically cross-country skiing and cross-country ski training. At that point in time, had you started to think about tracking to a high level in the sport, be it cross country? And I know biathlon was still not on your radar, but were you thinking about getting up to that elite international level? No, not at all. <laughs> um, no, for, for me, I think it was, that was always a dream. I mean, to watch the Olympics was so cool. I was, I was so into it as a fan. For me, my, my big goal in high school was to place well in the Minnesota State High School meet and to make uh, junior nationals. Um, and those were kind of the two things that drove me. I wanted to ski in college too, but I didn't know if I was, if I was good enough. So college was an interesting pathway for you. And we were talking about this earlier. You had anything but a traditional college pathway. You were strong as a runner. You were strong as a cross-country skier. But walk through, if you could, how you progressed through your college years. Yeah. Yeah. Very non-traditional. Um, academics were definitely my priority. Um, even in high school, um, athletics was something I was super passionate about. But, I, you know, my family always stressed education first. And so for me, I kind of felt like I was kind of obligated to go to the best school that I got into. And I ended up getting into to Princeton University and a few of the service academies and decided to go to, to Princeton. Um, and while there, I, I tried to walk on to the, the cross-country running team, which I, which I did do, um, which is actually one of the 
it's kind of funny being a biathlete now on the international level, but that race of walking onto the team, it was a mid-September 5K time trial on the track. I had to run a certain time. I had to run, I think, 15.30 on the 5K to make the team. And I had never done that before. And, and I did it. Um, and that, that still is one of the most kind of like meaningful accomplishments I think that I've had in, in my life. And one of those races where you cross the line and you feel like you accomplished what you set out to do. And so that was a big goal. So I ran for Princeton for, for two years and studied engineering there. And kind of after two years, and honestly, after maybe a semester there, I just kind of felt like Princeton wasn't a great fit for me. I think the second year, I still felt like, okay, if I can get through four years here, you know, I'll have a degree from an Ivy League school, and that would be great. Um, but after two years, I just knew that it wasn't quite quite the right fit. Um, I knew I needed a change. I decided to change my major to biology. Um, I was super passionate about training and about the human body. And so uh, I did that, but in order to do that, I had to take some time off, take some classes at the University of Minnesota. So I had the, the correct prerequisites to come back to Princeton and still graduate for years, which at least at the time was a requirement from Princeton. So I took that time off and, and ended up deciding to take a full year off. And I got back into cross-country ski racing during that year and just fell in love with it again. I did a lot of the CCSA races. I raced the American Berkebeiner. And I had a lot more success than I thought that I would have. And I was a lot better than I had been in high school. Um, I was training with, with a group of guys from the Midwest um, that were out of high school and, and um, a coach named Bill Pierce, who I believe now lives in Colorado. And it, it just reintroduced me to the love of the sport again. And I kind of thought, hmm, maybe I could transfer to somewhere that's a little bit of a better fit for me, could be a little closer to home, could stay in Minnesota study something that I really enjoy and get back into cross-country skiing. So I decided to transfer to St. Olaf College in Minnesota. And I ran and skied at St. Olaf um, and studied biology, which honestly was a really good fit for me um, to be able to go back to having skiing in my life and having the balance with running too, and also a, a, still a strong academic program. So that was a really good fit for me. And I graduated from St. Olaf in 2015 with a biology degree. But since I had um, only ran my first two years of college, I actually had a, a season of eligibility left in Nordic skiing. And St. Olaf's team was super fun, but it wasn't the most high performance oriented um, skiing experience out there. And I had qualified for NCAAs my senior year at St. Olaf, but I still really was curious, hey, what can I do in this sport? And so that was kind of the year that I made a decision to kind of postpone the real world, had a job offer. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go ski for a year. And so I, I got a scholarship offer from Northern Michigan University, Sten Feldheim's program. I knew some guys on the team. I knew, you know, I had raced against those guys. I knew how strong they were. I had talked to Adam Martin, Ian Torchia, Kyle Bratrud, um, Frederick Schwenke, and they all had great things to say about the program. And so I was like, Hey, why not take a year and, and do this? I can study exercise science, which is fun. But I, I truly went there to be a part of that ski team. And so I got to do that year at Northern Michigan, which was which was like huge for me. I really, really improved as a skier. Um, I ended up finishing that year as an NCAA All-American. And our team on the men's Nordic side was the, the top scoring Nordic men's Nordic team in the country for, for colleges. And so that just kind of ignited my passion and uh, 
that that was a great way to finish out my my college athletic career. Going back to that year that you took off to ski before St. Olaf's, how did you do in that Berkey? I was 16th, I think, in that Berkey. And that was a really cool race, actually, for me. Um, you know, just a kid who had just been a runner. And I grew up, like, idolizing the American Berkebiner. Like I said, my dad being a first-wave Berkey skier meant oh, that was – I thought that was really cool. So to be racing in the elite wave – and I was in the elite wave, actually, because um, I had come back from Princeton and raced uh, to Berkey just for kicks um, the two years prior with my family and had raced well enough to make the elite wave. Um, and so I, I had an elite wave position and in, in that race, um, I just, you know, I kept on getting dropped by the lead pack, but then we'd just hammer and eventually find them up the trail when they would slow back up again. And I got to 45 K and found myself still with the lead pack. And there was one point we were going on a gradual downhill and I found myself in the middle of the pack of maybe 20 guys, 16 guys with Matt Leach and Sylvan Ellison, who were two of the big stars at the time. And Matt like pointed to like the three of us and were like, for America. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> so um, that was like a, that was a cool, cool moment for me. But I think I ended up finishing 16th. I got dropped uh, just before the lake. That That is a fantastic story though. And I'm sure it's one you're going to tell many, many times. I'll bet dad was really proud. Was he in the race that year? Yeah. Yeah, he was. He was in the race. Um, he skis it every year. But the thing I think he was most proud of about was after the race, um, you know, I had some skis that I picked up from Gear West. It might have even been from the Gear West bargain bin at the time. Um, but, uh, he had, he had waxed my skis. And after the race, Matt Leach came up to me and asked me who waxed my skis because he thought they were fast. And I told him that my dad did. And so my dad was so proud of that. That is great. He could probably get a job there now. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a great cross country career at, at college and uh, yeah. on, on the circuit, but what eventually triggered you to give biathlon a try? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what it was. I, like I said, just being a sports fan, there is something about biathlon that always really intrigued me. Every now and then, you know, Mount Itasca or Elk River would offer some races for novices in the springtime, but either with cross-country skiing races conflicting or track starting up in the spring when some of those things were being offered, I never got to try it out as a kid. I did shoot like five shots once, I think, after a junior Olympic qualifying race in Mount Itasca, but didn't do very well. Anyway, it always intrigued me primarily, to be totally honest, because I was always a great skate skier and not a very good classic skier and a very good distance skier, but not a very good sprinter. And so I was like, hey, biathlon, there's an event where if I could ever learn how to shoot, it's skate distance every day, something maybe I, I could compete in. I don't know. I finally kind of got an opportunity to try biathlon. I think when they started offering the, the, the talent ID camp in 2014 and I wasn't able to go because through St. Olaf, I had committed to study abroad in Norway that summer, which was a fantastic experience, but my brother went and he always had really good things to, to say about the team, the U S biathlon team. And I was just so living vicariously through his experience there asking him, all sorts of questions about what it was like. And um, I was really jealous that he got to go to that camp. Well, the next year, thankfully, they offered it again, and I applied and got accepted to go. 
So that was actually the year between graduating from St. Olaf and going to Northern Michigan. I got to go to the town ID camp with the U.S. Biathlon team. Um, it was me, Kelsey Dickinson, Paul Schomer, Alex Howe, and Emily Dreisigacker at that camp, um, who ended up all becoming my, my teammates and friends later on. So I actually drove out there with Paul. We had gotten to know each other a little bit just through racing against each other. He went to St. Glasgow. I went to St. Olaf. And that was kind of the trip where we became friends, I guess, along with his St. Glasgow teammate, Andy Cryer. Shout out to Andy if he's listening to this. But so that was the first time I actually got to try biathlon. I'd say that was a pretty productive talent ID camp for the team. Yeah, yeah, it was. Definitely. Did you have any shooting background in scouting or with your family, anything before then? Yeah, in, in Boy Scouts, actually. Just a really little bit, though, to be honest. I haven't shot much, but I did shoot in scouts. And every time I pick up a rifle, I, I seem to have that knack. I actually was out and did a, uh, a summer biathlon range experience last fall. And I was really proud because I, I, I think I, I think I might've even shot clean one of the rounds. I don't think it's anything comparable to what you do, but it was a, a source of great pride for me. No, that's impressive. If you shot clean, we'll have to have you out one time when, when we're in, in Utah, have you come down and go for a shoot. Well, I really had a blast. Uh, Zach Hall was had a group of us out there, and it was it was really really a fun experience. So you did your last year of college at Northern Michigan University, having maybe caught the biathlon bug. Were you thinking then at that time about going from college into biathlon as an athlete? Uh, yes, I, I was thinking about it. But I just want to back up real quick, too, uh, because I do want to say about having any shooting experience before in, in Boy Scouts, I did shoot a little bit. I think I may have even earned rifle merit badge, but uh, I was a horrible shooter, like really bad. Like, I think it took me more attempts than anyone to shoot the required group size to get the merit badge. So if anyone out there feels like they're a bad shot, you know, and that's a reason you're not going to try biathlon, like you definitely can learn, you know, it takes work, work ethic and there are other things, but to have good coaching to actually know what you're doing makes a huge difference when it comes. So when it comes to shooting. So anyway, I just wanted to say that, but yes, I, I did. I didn't know what I wanted to do after that year at Northern Michigan. There was a chance I would continue and finish the degree, um, which was a two-year program, but I didn't have scholarship for the second year because I couldn't be on the ski team. Um, there was a chance I would just continue with cross-country skiing. After that year went pretty well, I thought, hey, maybe I'll just continue to ski. But I didn't know. So that was a really hard decision at the end of that year. And ultimately, I was, I'm glad that I gave biathlon a shot. But I'll tell you the truth that for like the first two years of biathlon, I wasn't sure if I had made the right decision or not. So you're, how old are you at this point? You're early to mid-20s at this point? Yeah, with all my with all my college switcheroos I was 24 by the time I graduated I finished my year at Northern Michigan and started biathlon you know I'm always intrigued by the different pathways that people take we had Claire Egan on the heartbeat podcast earlier this year and she didn't pick up a rifle till she was 25 and has gone on to a very successful career you are certainly tracking that way too as you got into the sport as a mid-20s athlete was there a turning point for you where all of a sudden it started to click and you thought, this is going to work? Uh, I, I honestly, Tom, I don't think there was a point in time where I thought this is going to work. Biathlon is such a, 
such a funky experience where sometimes you are just on fire and you're loving it. And other times you just aren't and you're in a slump or for whatever reason, you're not hitting the targets. And hitting a target can be so addicting. My teammate from Crashbury Raleigh Gasling, he, he says it's like, you know, it's like a drug, like that, that first time when you see a new athlete come and do a biathlon clinic and they hit a target and that paddle flips white, it's like, it's like a dopamine release in your brain or something. And so there's, there's something that made me stick with it. And even as things got better though, I wouldn't say there was a turning point because then there were always those periods of time, whether it was a month or two months where things weren't going well. And so it wasn't like there was all of a sudden a turning point. I think oftentimes I was questioning, you know, whether I had, had made the right decision to go into biathlon. And it's kind of been a long-term, a long-term process of convincing myself that like, Hey, you can do this, Jake, you can do this. What were some of your results like at that point? And I'm going to work my way up to where we are today. But if you go back into the 17, 18, 19 seasons, what was your progression of results? Yeah, good question. So my very first biathlon race I did was roller ski trials in Jericho. And I actually finished third behind Tim and Lowell. And I missed three, but I, I roller skied pretty well. And it was one of those those days right away where I was like, hey, maybe this could work. But I didn't match that performance again for two years. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy sport. You think... Sometimes you have to really have a level level head because your best result, you're not as good as your best result likely, and you're not as bad as your worst result likely. So that's just kind of the way that the sport is. You kind of have this average and you're always trying to work to push that average higher and higher and higher. So yeah, those first two years, my first year was 2016 to 2017. And that year I raced most on the North American cup circuit, um, which is a very small circuit. Um, but I was oftentimes missing six out of 10 targets. I remember a race in Lake Placid where I missed nine out of 10 of my standing targets. And that's not fun to do nine penalty loops at the end of a race. I think I went, missed four. And then my last stage, I missed all five shots. So I was oftentimes finishing near the back of those fields, just hammering on cross-country skis to trying to pass the guys who were much better shooters than I. I think I did have a couple races where I just missed three and shot seven out of 10. And those races that year were enough to get me an opportunity to compete in Europe at the end of that year in Finland and Estonia. So I was very lucky that my first year in biathlon, I got the chance to get exposed to European biathlon. And I don't know if that wouldn't have happened if I would have stuck in the sport. Because biathlon in Europe is just another level compared to North America. And so I was really, really fortunate that I was given that chance to come to Europe see what biathlon was. And I wasn't doing great. Um, I think my best result was like 51st on the IBU cup, 52nd on the IBU cup that year. But at least it, at least it showed me that, wow, this is really, this is a really hard sport. This is a really legit sport. And this is something that I want to be a part of and work towards being successful in. I know as a young athlete, uh, onlookers look at results and they see results that are back in the 40s and 50s and, you know, they wonder about that. But that exposure, getting there the first time, that exposure to the next level up internationally is absolutely vital, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's huge, Tom. And it's, it's something I'm always trying to advocate for, I think, for, 
other people, uh, my teammates to just, Hey, have an open mind and just go to these races and, and compete and enjoy it and try to execute your best, but just don't, ex don't expect too much because I think even for me on the world cup, I'm still pretty new to it. Like having this mindset of like, I'm just learning, I'm just experiencing. It's, it's a really, it's a growth mindset, you know? And I think that's important to have when you're going through a sport like biathlon with all its ups and downs. Um, but I really, yeah, I really think that it's really important for people to get the opportunity, especially if you're getting into the sport late, like I was, my brother is in that boat. Now my brother, Luke, uh, he's in his second year in biathlon, just for him to get to come over and just race, just get the race reps in it's, it's huge. Jake in 2019, you won a national title. How important was that in your progression? So, yeah, I would say for most athletes on the national team, U.S. Nationals is, isn't the highest priority. You, know, you spend the whole year racing on the World Cup and you come back and you race nationals and it can be kind of an afterthought. But to be totally honest, for me at the time, I felt like that was my, my best race to that point. And I really felt like that year, it was kind of a breakout year for me. I got to race my first World Cups. I got to go to World Championships. And I came into that race and racing the rest of everybody in North America. And I really wanted to prove it. I wanted to prove that I was at the level that I had kind of been well on the World Cup. And also, I wanted to show that I could, could do it anywhere. I could do it in North America. And so to come in and win that race actually meant quite a bit to me. So I was, I was very proud of that. So I want to work our way up to the 2021 season, which is being concluded now in Oostersund. But before we do that, let's talk about the preparation. You're a part of the Craftsbury program. Give us a sense of, of how you guys organized that training in Craftsbury this past summer in the midst of the pandemic. Ooh, yeah, great question. There, it was a lot of making some pretty strict conservative leadership decisions. Um, and I really commend the, the staff at Craftsbury for doing a really good job with that and being really smart and then kind of being always checking in and trying to see, okay, do we need to tighten up these restrictions? Can we loosen up these restrictions? How do we need to adjust? Like we were in a pretty fortunate scenario in Vermont where there really weren't many cases early on. Um, and we had some some pretty tight regulations, but we were able to be a little bit relaxed in our mentality and still be very safe. And then as we got into the fall, I think Craftsbury had to tighten those restrictions up. So what exactly they did, basically, um, first of all, it was Mike Gibson, who's my biathlon coach. He actually was one of the lead safety officers um, of implementing this, along with, um, of course, being overseen by Judy Gear, who I know you've had on the podcast. Yes. And her husband, Dick, runs Craftsbury. So essentially, they had us be kind of like a bubble, like the NBA had an NBA bubble of all the athletes who were training in Craftsbury. So the rowing teams and the skiing teams, ski team and the biathlon team. But because our, our bubble was like 30 people, our family unit was 30 people. That's a lot of people to be in a family unit, to have that privilege of being able to train together and live together. That also came with some responsibility to be a little bit more closed off from the rest of the world, which honestly wasn't easy. We were basically the only buildings that we could go in was our house and the gym. And then we had a small study space in what's called the AC, the activity center in Craftsbury. Over the course of the summer, they started to open up the dining hall once they figured out a way that we could operate the dining hall safely and have different times for the two different teams, for the ski team, for the rowing team, and also for the staff. 
and then different seating arrangements. Of course, we were sitting outside a lot early on, but also just making sure that people were eating with plenty of distance between each other, especially if like the athletes who were in one family unit would eat on one side, the staff would eat on another side. Um, and then we had some strict regulations for how you moved in and out of that athlete group that they called the pact. So if you ever went home, like I went back to Minnesota to train a little bit with Paul Schomer and my brother in August. And when I came back, then I had to quarantine in a cabin in Craftsbury for a week, get a COVID test. And then once I had a week long quarantine and a COVID test, I had met the Vermont state regulations, which at that time at least was enough for um, Craftsbury as well to allow me back into the pact. Um, and then once into the pact, I just had to follow the pact regulations. Did you feel at the time that you were having a good summer and fall of training? Did you have a sense that what you were doing was working for you and it was going to translate into results? To be honest, I did not. Um, I, I, had a, I was really tired a lot of this last training year. And I had to take, there were multiple times where I took, I think like four days off because I just felt so burnt down. We did quite a quite a heavy load of training without many easy weeks. And that was something that I was pretty new to. Um, and I think just also just being in Crossbury for a long period of time, I didn't go home after the last season. I, I came home to Crossbury. I was planning on going to Alaska and coaching with the ski coup program, which is a really cool program. Um, and then going home for a little bit and all those plans got canceled. And I ended up just staying in Crossbury straight through the summer. So I think I was I was just training continuously, training hard, and I got pretty beat down. And so I was not expecting to come out just like firing on all cylinders by any means. And so I was kind of surprised, honestly, to see that I was skiing fast uh, once the snow came. Well, and you found that out right away. You go to Contilati to open the season, and you have a top 30, a career best. So all of a sudden, you saw the results of it. Yeah, that was super exciting. And honestly, the week before we were in Volkati for, uh, for our team camp, which was an awesome camp. We finally got the chance to all be together training with our coach. Um, and we had uh, Vashik Cervanka and Max Jershi with us, in addition to the four guys who are here in Ostersund now and have been on the World Cup. So we had a group of six guys, six girls, um, all training together, working hard. And uh, we had some time trials there. And I did pretty well in those time trials. And that gave me a lot of confidence going into Contiolati that some ski fitness was there. So across the season, you're leading up a bit, I'm sure, to world championships, which came in February. You went into Pokolyuka. Well, actually, I should ask you, you went into Pokolyuka. Did you have any concept of what the opportunity was for you? Were you thinking that you could knock off a few more career bests at the world championships? Uh yeah, sure. I, I think, oh man, I think as an athlete, like you're always dreaming at I am anyway of what is possible. And you always think about what would it be like to be in a moment of, of pressure, a moment of opportunity when you have the chance. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you seize it and sometimes you don't, and sometimes you don't know why it works. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, I did feel like I had a good chance to have a, have a personal best. I, I knew that that 30 plate, 30th place in Contiolati, when I did it, it didn't feel like anything special. I didn't feel like I skied the race of my life. Um, I didn't feel like the shooting was anything special. It was good. It wasn't great. 
and you know, I struggled through the middle of the season. I had a lot of races where I skied much faster than I did in that race in Contiolati, but I just struggled to hit the targets consistently. I was skiing well in relays, but not so much in the individual races. So I had a good feeling that, all right, if I can ski and execute how I have been in the relays, maybe I could uh, have some success in the individual races. So I, I had a feeling that it was that it was possible. You shot clean in your 12th place finish in the sprint. I imagine that gave you a real energized feeling for what you did and how you performed that day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, yeah, it's, yeah, when you have a, like a breakthrough performance, I don't know, it just feels, it feels really good. It feels really rewarding. You know, our coach has a rule that you can only be happy or sad about your race until the flower ceremony occurs. And then you have to start thinking about the next race and looking forward. Uh, so I, I took full advantage of having an early start bib and having plenty of time until the flower ceremony to try to soak in all the enjoyment from that one I could. I think I went to the wax room all, all by myself and just like, yes, yes. So that, that was a really cool feeling, definitely. That, that's, that's really a fun story. W when you're in a race like that, What's your feeling? I mean, are you feeling different? Are you feeling like you are on the track to have that personal best? No, I think that's one of the interesting things about biathlon. I think everyone is always in search of the more perfect race. And for me, that was my best race I ever had, but it was not my best ski performance. I had had a much better ski race in the previous race in the mixed relay earlier. And I actually was pretty lucky. I think for me, I got the chance to race that mixed relay. And I think it really um, gave me a lot of confidence with my skiing. Um, Leif Norgren was scheduled to race that race and he crashed into a barrier um, a couple days before and just decided, hey, it's not worth it to push it. Um, you know, I know Jake can, can do all right in this position. I'm going to rest until the sprint. And so I got to race the mixed relay. And for me, it really served as a good tune-up race. And I had amazing skis and uh, uh, I out-skied out some faster skiers on the last lap. And it gave me a lot of confidence going into that sprint that I could ski well. But to be honest, I don't think that sprint, um, I skied quite as well as I had in that other race. So um, for me, I still feel like I'm still in search of a more perfect race. You are coming off now or finishing up what is your best season on the IBU World Cup. Can you look back to anything to say, hey, here's something that made a difference for me this year? Yeah, I think there are a number of things. Uh, one is just the opportunity to race on the World Cup consistently um, and not travel back and forth a lot between the IBU Cup. I think that was really helpful. And I think to go along with that theme, to be totally honest, kind of a blessing in disguise was the the World Cup schedule of having two weeks in a row at the same venue before we were moved on for most of the most of the time to minimize travel. Um, it was really nice not to have to travel so much, and it felt much more like kind of like a mini training camp when you're in the same place for two weeks. I also would say getting to work with uh, my Craftsbury coach Mike Gibson and um, the roller loop that Craftsbury put in. That was really uh, big for us at Craftsbury to have that that resource. So a huge thanks to the the Craftsbury Craftsbury crew, Judy and Dick, and also all the the maintenance guys who slaved away working to to get that done. And honestly, it's all the athletes too doing a 
good job with the trying to help landscape so we had proper drainage away was a big project in the fall. So having that roller loop was also huge and working with Mike Gibson and being on the ground every day at the range to work with us, that was really helpful. Jake, let's take that forward now. You've had some great results this year. The next step is putting together more consistency. What's it going to take to get to that next level where you're not just having 12th place finishes, you're having top 10 finishes on a more regular basis? What's it going to take to get to the next level for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for trying to figure out how to get to the next level, that's always the question. I guess that's always something I try to kind of take this spring to figure out and I'll start by looking at, okay, what are, what are, what have I done well and what is, what is working well that I want to continue and what are my weaknesses and maybe what are things that I have to change in order to address those weaknesses. So, um, for me, honestly, a huge one is shooting consistency, still being pretty relatively new in the sport. I can have those good shooting days sometimes, but you know, I'm really motivated by these last two, uh, men's relays. I had two penalty loops and the other team, other, my other teammates had great days those days. And to kind of have that day where you let down the team and then do it again, that's something where I look at that and I say, I don't, I want to be a more consistent athlete, a more reliable athlete for my teammates uh, when it comes to those kinds of days. So, yeah, I think for me, it's going to be a lot of, a lot of in the in the spring and in the summer, just trying to focus on precision shooting and also faster shooting, I think is something that I need to work on. So I really want to try to up the speed. So that's, I think, a discussion I'll have to have with Mike Gibson, my club coach, and also Vegard, the national team coach, about how we want to try to do that. Also looking into the future, albeit a very short future, we're just a little over 10 months away from the Olympics in Beijing. Uh, you I'm sure are looking forward to that. How important is making that Beijing team and, and looking ahead to what you could do at the Olympics? Yeah, I think I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to make it. I definitely want to make that team. And that's, that's always, that's been a goal for sure to try to make an Olympic team. Um, at the same time, you know, I think I, I haven't, I haven't had any success by trying to want something more. Um, you have to put in the work and you have to stay focused on just what's in front of you. And so I think being able to be conscious of, Hey, this is a goal that I want to achieve, but then facing the reality and knowing how to achieve that goal and knowing that it's not wanting it more, it's, it's doing the little things and trying to stay focused on what's right in front of you. And knowing that my identity is, an, is a, a lot uh, more stable place than just making the Olympic team or not. I think that's the kind of mindset that's going to allow me to ultimately do my best and hopefully make the team. As you look back, Jake, in your career in sport, be it running, cross country, or biathlon, what are some of the life lessons that you've taken away from your participation and your accomplishments? I think that last one is a big one, honestly. Um, through all disappointment, no, no disappointment in sports is life ruins your life and or should ruin your life and no achievement should make it more meaningful. You know, I, like my, I, my, I, my identity isn't, isn't in sport. It's, it's in my faith. And um, that's, I think something that just gets cemented more and more, the more I do sports and the more I experience success and the more I experience failure. Um, and just knowing that I have a, a stable, a stable faith is becomes more and more important. And I see the, the value of that. I think, 
I think other life lessons include the value of relationships. You know, I think along a similar vein, you have failures and successes, but what makes a season really fun? You know, here I just had the best result I've ever had in, in my life, getting 12th at Worlds, but I'm going to look back on this season and I'm going to remember that, sure. But I'm going to remember the other five months that I was on the road with my teammates playing football during the downtime and having all these crazy challenges and making jokes with our coach. So, you know, I think relationships ultimately are, are more valuable um, than any single result. So those are a couple. Well said, Jake. And thank you so much for sharing your story here with the listeners on Heartbeat. We're going to close it out with some hopefully fun stuff and hopefully easy stuff in a section that I call On Target. And simple question to start with, I think, did you have a sport hero when you were growing up in Minnesota? I think I had too many of them. <laughs> Tory Hunter was my favorite baseball player for the Twins. So I'll choose, I'll choose him. Okay, sounds good. Now that you're a biathlete, you're touring the world on the IBU Biathlon World Cup. Do you have a favorite biathlon venue? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think I have one favorite. I, I think there are a few that I really like. I really like Oslo. I really like Ostersund, actually. It's probably my favorite course. And I really love Anholt because of the beautiful weather there. Most everyone on this question picks Anholtz, of course. Yeah. So I'll be different. I'll pick Oslo. Love it. I love it. I love Oslo, actually. Uh, craziest thing you've experienced in your pandemic adventures the last year? Hmm. Craziest thing. Does it have to be pandemic related? Well, I guess not. <laughs> I think maybe one of the funny one of the funniest things was having to play Red River Valley on the trumpet on Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis after losing a bet um, to Paul Schomer um, after our Moose Nordic training camp in Hayward, Wisconsin. Oh, we got to hear more about this. This is great. <laughs> so we had we had a little competition throughout the throughout the week, and if people want to, they should log on to Paul's YouTube channel. It's called Biathlon Uncharted, and Paul's doing a great job of making a lot of vlogs and also fun track talk videos that we do where we preview uh, all the different World Cup venues. And for one of them, we did a series of competitions and the losers of the competition had to sing was the original proposition, the song of the winner's choice on the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis when we returned to the cities. And so Paul won. And so he chose that Luke and I play uh, trumpet on the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis. So that was our punishment. Do you play trumpet? I do, yeah. And is there a video of this? There is, yeah. You have to. You can go on Paul's YouTube and check it out. Oh, this is a great story. Okay, next one. If training and good nutrition didn't matter, what's your favorite meal? Pizza. Do you have a favorite pizza place? Pizza, I mean, honestly, the pizza and ice cream day at Craftsbury is amazing. And we didn't have it for so much of the pandemic. And that was a shame. I really missed it. My favorite pizza place is probably either anywhere in Italy, because there's just amazing pizza everywhere you go in Italy, it seems like. Pizzeria Hans in Toblock is amazing. Um, and I also really like uh, Parker Pie in, in Vermont. Awesome choices. We're getting down to the end now. What's the most outrageous adventure that you'd like to take someday? Oh man, I have 
I have a dream of doing a pack rafting trip across gates of the Arctic National Park in Alaska. That's that's one on the bucket list for sure for probably after biathlon. So if anyone is an avid pack rafter that wants to teach me how to how to safely pack raft, let me know. That sounds like a great adventure. And then finally, in one word, Jake, what has biathlon meant to you? Challenge. Challenge. I think it's 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 simple, but I think that's that's it for me. Like it's been a huge challenge, but challenges, challenges in life are what like mold you into who you become. Uh, so I think it's, yeah, it's a challenge and the challenge that sometimes I, I fail to, to overcome. And sometimes it's a challenge that I've succeeded in. So it's the combination of all that, that has, uh, helped mold me as an athlete and and as a person in some ways too. Jake Brown, thank you so much for sharing your story with the listeners on Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. It's been a joy to talk to you and good luck in Ostersund and in the seasons to come. And we'll look forward to seeing you in Beijing. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. This was fun for me. So thanks. Jake Brown is an amazing young man with a very sound approach to his future in the sport. We hope to see him at the Olympics next February in Beijing. We hope you're enjoying Heartbeat. Want to get episodes sent directly to you as soon as they're out? Simply hit the subscribe button. You'll find Heartbeat on all podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. We'll be back with another episode of Heartbeat soon. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, for all of us at U.S. Biathlon. Thanks for joining us on Heartbeat. Heartbeat.